Okay, before we get started, has anybody here had experience with IIH, either having it or treating it? Two. Okay, cool. So we'll go, th thank you. We'll go through some history and some nosology because it's had five different names. So I was told that I had to introduce myself, so that's who I am. And the only thing I can disclose is I pay taxes. You know, More than that, I can't tell you. Okay, so what we're going to talk about is this is something I typically get uh, sent as a headache patient, okay? And we find out that they have IIH. What is IIH? Int idiopathic intracranial hypertension. It's a disorder that's characterized by an increased intracranial pressure of unknown cause. And I say unknown cause, though I'm going to give you about a dozen of them that are potential causes. And what it all boils down to is you know the central nervous system is surrounded by a dura. And you know that the typical person has 150 cc's of cerebral spinal fluid that gets replaced three times a day. Okay? Now, in these patients, what happens is that the amount of CSF, cerebral spinal fluid, increases in this little area that's surrounded by the dura. The dura doesn't bulge. You have increased pressure. So that's really what causes it, but why is it caused? That's the issue. That's what it is. What causes it in this person versus that one? Few answers, and we'll give them. Typically, it's seen in women of childbearing age, and we'll go through some of the epidemiology of that, and it's associated with a history of obesity, all right? Or patients that will gain 1.8 to 2 kilograms of weight in the month or two before it manifests. Now, this was first talked about. It was called serous meningitis way back in 1893 by Dr. Quinke in Germany. Then, pseudotumor cerebri was the new name because there is no solid tumor. There's no SOL in the brain. So it was called pseudotumor cerebri in 1904. And then ototic hydrocephalus by Sir Charles Simmons in 1931. And I'll point out that there is no hydrocephalus associated with this disorder. Later, the term was benign intracranial hypertension. People still used the term pseudotumor cerebri, and they use that term today. All right? The issue is um, it was because it wasn't from a tumorous space-occupying lesion. But now they were using benign intracranial hypertension. People shut that down and now call it idiopathic intracranial hypertension because how benign is a disorder that will make you blind? Because the main problem with this disorder is not headache primarily. It's blindness. Here's a picture. Uh, let's see if I can do anything here. Okay, this is a normal fundus. This shows old optic atrophy. So you can see the back of the eye, the retina, is dull. 
and there's not really a lot of red blood vessels. You see this gray mess there. That's from chronic optic atrophy. And I will show you later some slides of the f six types of papilledema. Anybody here an ophthalmologist? Shucks. Okay. Love talking to those people about this. All right. Incidence. You'd think that this would be really common, and it's not. All right. If you look at annual incidence of IIH in the general population per 100,000 people, it is one to two people per 100,000 population. However, when you t tune it down to women of childbearing age, okay, between 15 and 44, it's 4 to 21 per 100,000 patients. And then if you make it obese people, it's even more. Internationally, again, three things. Women of all ages, women of childbearing age, and women who are obese and in childbearing age. So demographics, IIH, can prevent, can present, rather, in patients of any age. Okay, typically it's a woman in her 20s. Okay, and what's amazing about, and I was giving you the epidemiology, the, the numbers, in my first 36 years of practice, I think I saw 60 patients with this disorder. In the three years I've been at UNC, um, I have 120 of them. Absolutely blows my mind. That, and one of the reasons is, I believe that because of the this, I believe that there is a socioeconomic issue here, because the women are almost all morbidly obese, and most of these folk don't have insurance or Medicaid. Okay, and there's. I think maybe 20% of my patients have good insurance, which is irrelevant. But when you think of obesity and you think of what can create it, it's poor diet, it's poor issues like that that can bring this on. And we're talking not, by the way, a little fat. We're talking a uh, five-foot-four woman who's three to 400 pounds. Okay? So this is not what you'd think. Men with IIH typically are not obese. But unfortunately, these are the folk that develop fulminant idiopathic intracranial hypertension. And if you don't catch it right away, within three months they could become blind. So you've got to recognize it. You've got to treat it immediately. And at the same time, you're starting to treat it. You get a neurosurgical consultation because you want on a, do on a moment's notice to call the neurosurgeon and say, okay, we need a shunt now. But there's other ways of dealing with it, and we'll talk about treatment, obviously. IIH has no preferential race, ethnic group, nothing. All comers. Study looking at the incidence of IIH in children. Under the age of seven, not an issue with obesity, typically a little boy for every little girl. But over the age of seven, obesity does matter, and there's typically uh, two young girls for each young boy. And the obesity is more on the female than the male side, though there is some in the male side. 
Recent weight gain, as I told you, over two months preceding the symptoms can bring it on, even with somebody that's not morbidly obese. Okay, the, uh, they did have an idiopathic intracranial hypertension trial, treatment trial. 5% of these folk said that there was a family history of IIH, but in that trial they didn't ask about a family history of obesity. So further incidents, again, from Rochester Mayo Clinic. Etiology, as I said, what causes the increased CSF that increases intracranial pressure? That is the answer that we don't have. We know what happens, these people, and I'll tell you why we know that. You stick a needle in a lumbar puncture, and you'll get a remarkably high opening pressure, and we'll go into that in detail. So. If IIH presents in an individual who's not overweight, and I have some, uh, it's necessary to rule out associated risk factors. Exposure to medications, which we'll go into, some of which will be very surprising to you. Systematic or systemic diseases like Lyme's disease, disruption of cerebral venous flow, and endocrine or metabolic issues. This gentleman noted criteria for a drug or a disorder that has any etiology or etiological issue with IIH, you have to have two published cases. Now, in terms of substances that can cause IIH, oh, antibiotics, tetracycline, minocycline, carbidopa and levodopa. Put together, you have cinnamon. So you'd expect, and you actually have, an increased number of IIH patients in the Parkinsonian group. Corticosteroids, notice, topical corticosteroids can induce this problem. Cyclosporin, danazole, growth hormone, and I'll point out I've got two patients who didn't have growth hormone. They were taking a um, homeopathic medication to increase growth hormone. So it's not just people who get injections of pure human growth hormone. Indomethacin, ketoprofen, lead, levonogestrel implants, because look at the bottom there. Well, lithium, oxytocin, phenytoin, oral contraceptives. And one thing I remember from medical school very, very <laughs> well, and that was a long time ago, Vitamin A, hypervitaminosis A. And when they talked about that for other reasons, not IIH, because never taught, was taught that in medical school, the, the one answer was, don't ever eat polar bear liver. I don't know why anybody would do that, but okay. Systemic diseases that can influence IIH. Anemia, obs, you know, OSA, obstructive sleep apnea. Hypertension. Multiple sclerosis, chronic renal disease, and it can be renal disease stage one, doesn't have to be three or four. Rise syndrome, sarcoidosis, lupus, and thrombocytopenic purpura. The endocrine risk factors, the one we guarantee that we know, Female sex, reproductive age group, 15 to 44. Menstrual irregularity in about 50 to 60% of my patients. Obesity, 
and or recent weight gain. Other endocrine risk factors that have been attributing or attributed to inducing IIH, but not proven, there weren't two published papers, adrenal insufficiency, Cushing syndrome, hypoparathyroidism, okay, hypothyroidism, as you'd expect, excessive thyroxine replacement in children, and pregnancy. This can occur in any trimester of a pregnant woman. And typically, you, you can try to treat it with medications, but obviously I prefer you don't use medications in children, you know, in pregnant women, I should say. And after the pregnancy, within four weeks, it goes away. Differential diagnosis. One of the things most commonly seen in IIH, there's two neurological things that you'll find. Number one, papilledema. Number two, a sixth nerve or abducens nerve palsy, which is horizontal diplopia, not vertical. Okay? And you can have drusen of the optic nerve heads, which are, you can, it looks like there's a mass on the retina. Malignant hypertension, bilateral infiltrative of infectious or inflammatory optic neuropathy. Um, Leptomeningeal carcinomatosis. Migraine variants is so rare, I don't even, I'm putting it in here only because it's written, but I've never seen this as a migraine variant. Pediatric Lyme disease and subarachnoid hemorrhage. Visual symptoms. What happens if you get it? Transient visual obscurations are part of the tripod. There's three diagnoses that if a, if a patient has them, you'd need to do two things immediately and make a diagnosis and start treating immediately as soon as possible. Transient visual obscurations is one. Typically, this is orthostatic in nature when a patient gets stands up from a lying or seated position or sits or lies down. They can have a brownout or transient blindness lasting up to 30 seconds, one or both eyes. Some people will have an experience of what they call floaters. So you want a neuro-ophthalmologist to take a look and see what else is causing that. You get blurring or distortion of central vision. That's called metamorphopsia. All right. Photopsia, bright lights. Rapid development of visual loss, which is the fulminant IIH. Again, more likely in men than women. Interestingly, I have one patient that if I, I reviewed his chart, I saw him, he was referred to me with a uh, diagnosis of papilledema, gentleman, he wasn't obese, and then I looked at his old records in Epic, and going, the papilledema went back 10 years, no, two years, two years, I'm sorry, two years worth of papilledema. And what really surprised me was he didn't have optic atrophy. Typically, extended papilledema will cause optic atrophy, and you'll hear, and you'll show you pictures. Now, Dandy, Dandy was a very famous neurosurgeon from Northwestern, where I, tried, where I studied, and his criterion, published in 1937, was number one, the only symptoms, and you only get symptoms and signs of increased intracranial pressure. There are no localizing neurological findings except for typically bilateral, but it can be unilateral, 
sixth nerve or a Dusen's nerve palsy, number one, and papilledema. Cerebral spinal fluid will show increased pressure, but everything else is normal. Neuroimaging, really important. We'll get into that, and I'll show you some examples. And neuroimaging reveals radiographic signs of increased ICP, which are very minimal. And there are no other causes. Okay. And then more recently, Friedman in 2002 and 04 contributed two things. One is diagnostic lumbar puncture. That's the money test. And it should be given with the patient in a lateral decubitus position. Two years ago, somebody wrote a paper saying they should be in a lateral decubitus position, but instead of in a fetal position, their legs should be extended. Because by putting it in a fetal position, they think that may increase the pressure. Okay, so that's something you may want to consider when you do an LP. Before you do the LP, obviously, you need to do an MRI and an MRV. MRV has become more and more important, and basically, you don't want to do just an MRI and not an MRV because uh, venous sinus thrombosis and venous uh, sagittal sinus thromboses or cavernous sinus thromboses are pretty much um, frequently seen. And I'll show you a picture next. But some patients, of course, if they can't undergo an MRI because they have a, uh, something metal inside, or I have one patient with um, metal from a bullet behind his eye, no MRI for him. So you can do a CAT scan and a CAT venogram. So the clinical triad. Patient comes in, you take a history, they've got new form of headache. Headache really isn't in the clinical triad. It's incidental to three things. Number one, it's incidental to transient visual obscurations. You can't get those unless you have papilledema. Number two, pulsatile tinnitus. You all know tinnitus is a loud, constant noise. Pulsatile tinnitus is not. Pulsatile tinnitus is a whooshing sound. It's typical typically unilateral or bilateral, doesn't matter, but a patient will tell you it'll be there for one to two minutes, three or four times a day, and it's a whooshing sound that essentially beats in the same cadence as your pulse. But it is not high-pitched, and it is transient. Okay? Papilledema, when you examine that patient after you take that history, if you have that clinical triad, you have to move immediately. Okay, because you don't know what stage that is unless you're an ophthalmologist, and I'll get to what you got to do. So you, you take the history. Uh, they have pulsatile tinnitus, TVOs, transient visual obscurations. They have papilledema. Headache is incidental. If they have headache, it can be of any form. It is typical, typically not specifically any type of headache. The most common format is it's in the posterior aspect and bending or picking up and sitting up or lying down with their head biased can increase pain, okay? And the only thing, the only way to know if that headache is secondary to the IIH is when you get to do the lumbar puncture. But before you get to the lumbar puncture, you have to do an MRI, an MRV. You've got to rule out an SOL. You obviously don't want anybody sticking a needle in somebody's back if through a lumbar puncture, if there's an, an SOL. Then, at the same time, typically, you want to get a thorough neurological 
neuro-ophthalmological evaluation. And what I mean by that is the only thing you have to follow is visual fields. Okay? It's the visual field that tells you whether what you're doing to treat the patient is working. So therefore, every two to three months, patients need to get Humphrey's visual fields. That's the um, computerized, where they look with one eye and they, they see computerized lights there and they're clicking things. And so you get a picture of their visual fields, and I'll show you some. So the three-part workup, MRI, MRV, neuro-ophthalmological, and if you have to wait on that, you have to wait, but right after the MRI, you get the LP. The LP, lumbar puncture, if the opening pressure is higher than 25 centimeters of water, okay, normal is 0 to 25, 0 to 20, so I give them another 5, maybe 8. But a lot of my patients clock in at 30 to 60 centimeters of water. Think of that, 60 centimeters of water with normal being 20. Think of what that does to the visual system. So that's the money test. If that is 20, 26 or higher, they've got IIH. Okay, That's your diagnostic criteria. So the pathophysiology, as I told you, is unclear. We have some guesses, and we're going to go through those, what people think might cause this. And what is this? Again, increased CSF that is causing the increased pressure. And the one thing I said I'd mention and didn't, when you do the lumbar puncture, my rule for my patients is if the lumbar puncture is 30 or above, I want them to drain 30 cc's of fluid. Okay, And if their headache is secondary to the increased intracranial pressure, the headache will go away. The problem is, as you all know, you have CSF that replenishes itself three times a day. It's constantly being made. So that's why you use a medication that we'll talk about to stop a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor to stop production of CSF. But if you want to know if the headache is secondary to the IIH, you drain the fluid. And typically, for 24 hours or so, patients will get better. Their headaches will go away. But then they have the same problem, increased CSF, and the headaches will return. Now, I've had one patient, I have one patient now, who, when she was first diagnosed by somebody, they put her in a hospital for two and a half weeks and did 11 lumbar punctures. Anybody here want to have their patient have 11 lumbar punctures? Not me. Think of the possible ability to have meningitis. Think of the downside. Like most patients in, in, at UNC, where I work, uh, Patients who get their LP by the neurology group don't have post-LP headache. But when it's done in radiology, and most of these patients are large, and it's really tough to do the LP without a C-arm. So the patients that go to radiology to get the C-arm is probably 60 to 70%. And the issue is probably 50% of those people who get it done in radiology develop a post 
uh, puncture, lumbar puncture headache, okay? And they need to come back in within two days and get a blood patch, okay? So, what can cause this, all right? Venous sinus stenosis, okay, and compression. You might have a coagulopathy, so that's one thing that you want to look at. If the MRV is positive and there is a uh, sagittal sinus thrombosis or cavernous sinus thrombosis, you need to check it out. But that could be what's causing, and it's a question, did that cause the IIH or was that caused by the IIH? And nobody has an answer to that my knowledge. You can get self-sustained venous collapse. What happens, it's proposed as a causative mechanism in patients that are predisposed to this. Basically, it leads to intracranial hypertension in the presence of a lot of triggering factors, one of them being the long-term remission that can occur after a few or several CSF drops from lumbar punctures. And again, you don't want to do that. The controversy, as I said, is that four or secondary to the sinus, the IIH. So you can get disorders of cerebral venous drainage. Compression of, of the cerebral veins by extravascular tumors, that one's obvious. What's not so obvious, secondary thrombosis. Again, secondary to a coagulopathy. Relative stenosis, secondary to a venous flow anomaly. And you'll see something very interesting in a little bit. Diagnosis of cerebral sinus thrombosis. Again, you can only make that on an MRV. Here's a picture of the sinus, sinuses in the central nervous system. Typically, superior sinus, superior sagittal sinus, and the cavernous sinus is where you get most of these. Okay. Here's a picture. You have, you have the, the dreaded uh, arrow sign over there to show you where, the, where in the sagittal sinus there's a problem. Okay. Here is the arterial blood supply of the brain. That's interesting because one thing that happens, you have increased arterial blood flow. Bateman did some studies that were wonderful, and it showed that in some IIH patients, actually a majority, they have normal dural venous drainage, but they have increased arterial blood flow. So what you have is more blood coming in than venous blood leaving. And that's crea that creates the backup and the increased pressure. Now we talked about IIH and obesity. Okay, it, it's been proposed, and this is important, why even talk about obesity? It's for this reason. It's been proposed that the obesity increases the intra-abdominal pressure, and this raises the cardiac filling pressure, and this raises pressure in the brain because there's a valveless venous system that goes from the brain to the heart. Valveless. All right, so there's nothing to stop the increased pressure. And then people have looked at the waist-to-hip ratio. Okay, this one study here, they looked at um, a number of patients and found that fat accumulates in the IIH patients below the waist. MRI with gadolinium, best choice. MR venogram should be done simultaneously. 
Here you can see slit light findings, and then over here, increased CSF and tortuosity. Okay, and you can see here the optic nerves. All right. Again, the arrow sign. Here, over here, you can see increased CSF, and here's the optic nerves that are tortuous. Now, what happens, as we'll talk about in greater detail, is the CSF that is increased around the optic nerves creates pressure on the nerve sheath, and that strangles that, and that's what causes the papilledema, as you'll see. It's an axoplasmic defect that I'll describe in detail. Here's another one. I like this. You can see the white here and here, and the white here and here, and it's very important because that's uh, scleral flattening. That is an absolute sign of, one of the few, absolute signs of IIH on MRI. An empty cella or a partially empty cella. Remember, cella tersica sits right there, okay, and there. And the pituitary sits there. But you can have an empty cella. The pituitary is either crushed. And so you have just CSF there, and you can't even see what's left of the pituitary. Or it just gets moved up. So that is one of the signs that you can see on an MRI. Symptoms of papilledema, we talked about transient visual obscurations. The disturbance can last up to 30 seconds, and it's dimming or blackout of vision, as I told you. And it is orthostatic in nature when they sit up or stand up, rather, from a sitting or lying position or go the other way. They can also have floaters. Uh, interesting, in a study of 353 patients with IIH, only 5.7% did not have papilledema. And the diagnosis was made again by increased intracranial pressure on an LP. Physical exam, basically you have bilateral disc edema and possibly a sixth nerve palsy with diplopia that is horizontal. Other than that, it's pretty much normal. Pathophysiology of papilledema, again, as I told you, it's axoplasmic. Disc swelling in papilledema is a result of axoplasm. The flow is becomes static, okay? With the intraaxial edema in the area of the optic disc, what happens is the subarachnoid space of the brain is overfilled, and it puts pressure on that. And what happens is as that pressure increases, the pressure that is transmitted to the sheath of the optic nerve, uh, it acts as a tourniquet with the increased pressure and cuts off the ability of the axoplasm in the neurons to leave. And that's why you have the abutting, the uh, enlargement, if you will, of the edema. And here's how to grade edema. When I teach the residents, you know, one of the things I almost always hear from each of them is they don't see a lot of papilledema, and it's not really a lot. They have some great new tools that I don't have. One is um, about this big. It's a magnifier. You can put it against here, put your ophthalmoscope there, and it's really wonderful 
and one day I'll probably buy one. But this is the Frisson Papilledema scale. Zero, grade zero, is a normal disc. Totally normal, no problem. This is what all our discs in this room should be looking like right now. And note, there's no C-shaped halo, okay, with a temporal gap. But in stage grade one, you have a C-shaped halo with a temporal gap. But then in stage two, that halo is all around, it's circumferential, all around the optic head or the optic nerve, okay? Come on. I'm sitting here doing this and it's not moving. There we go. Thank you. All right, grade three papilledema is characterized by loss of major blood vessels outside of the disc. And again, you have the arrow side right there. Grade four is you're losing vessels on the disc. And grade five is you've lost them all. Is that a point of no return? Basically, at that point, um, they're pretty close to having significant uh, deficits in their visual field, and I'll show you what those look like in a little bit, okay? Thank you, Ellen. So the duration of papilledema, first thing you see if it's new, uh, disc hyperemia, redness in the optic nerve in the eye, obscuration of peripapillary vessels. Remember, when you look in the eye, you should also look for the blood vessels moving. That stops as soon as there's any edema. Okay, Sponta those are called spontaneous venous pulsations. Later manifestations are obscured normal disc margins, as I showed you, and the disc becomes elevated. Venous congestion develops, and you can see drusen, you can see other issues. The peripapillary sensory retina on the retina, the, the nerves, can develop concentric or wrinkled folds called patin lines, okay? And then chronic manifestations, papilledema will go on for months, uh, but then what will happen is the disc that's hyperextended, it's red, and it has all these problems with blood vessels, becomes white and or gray, and the whole retina becomes gray, just like that first slide I showed you, okay? And that's what you see with chronic problems. So the ophthalmological exam, the first thing you see on the exam is an increased blind spot. And I should point out that doing a neurological exam where you're throwing fingers, how many fingers do you see? That's really insensitive to what we're looking at because there's not a change in visual acuity. There's a change in the visual field itself. So you see the enlargement of the blind spot and then you see an inferior nasal quadrant, opsia. In other words, it's a, what I call a nasal step. And here's one. This is an enlarged blind spot over here and the nasal step up. You can see how this should have come down here round, but this step up is there and the enlarged blind spot is there. And here's another visual field showing enlarged blind spot and markedly constricted visual field. 
remember if we go this way, look at the size of that visual field, and that's cut off when that optic step, and then look at the size of this visual field with an enlarged blind spot. Now, with that, visual acuity typically does not change, but their ability to see more than here changes. Okay, that's what they're left with. Here's, this is actually what the Humphrey perimetry looks like. Okay, you see here's four of them. First is an enlarged blind spot, which is over here. Okay, and then secondly is the nasal step up here. And then thirdly is the biarcuate scotoma. And finally is a markedly constricted visual field. So, the only severe and permanent complications of IIH is progressive blindness. And that's what our job is to avoid for these patients, okay? As the optic nerve head axons die, the degree of papilledema appears to diminish, but the visual field is also getting smaller and more difficult to see out of. So we've talked about that. When you do a clinical exam, you may want to do some blood work. I don't do a lot because pretty much I know what's going on. So here are things that you may want to do. You can look at ANAs, but unless the history and the examination indicates that there's a fever, there's hypoparathyroidism, there's hyperthyroidism, whatever is going on that you want to check for, there's no reason really to do a lot of blood work. And Equally important, CSF evaluation. Unless there's a Kernig and Brzezinski and you have a high, uh, a high reason to think about a meningitis, I would typically say after you do the lumbar puncture and get the opening pressure, most important thing, then you just do four test tubes, 12 cc's, or if it's over 30, I want you to, to drain 30 cc's of fluid. Okay. So that the CSF evaluation itself is normal, okay, is the routine. You get uh, cell count, you get sugar, you get protein, and you get a blood culture for virus and bacteria. Treatment, all right. The main treatment for IIH is a drug called acetazolamide. Acetazolamide um, is a very interesting drug. I have patients that have been on it for years and do just fine. Typical side effects of acetazolamide are perioral and paresthesias in the hand and perioral region. And the other thing is it helps patients lose weight because if they try to take a drink of a sugary carbonated fluid, soda, it tastes so metallic that they immediately spit it out. Truly, it's a metallic taste. So that's one reason I have some patients, I don't want to be on, on uh, acetazolamide. The other most important issue is when a patient has IIH, your job is to protect their vision and put the disease away. But really what you're doing is putting the disease in remission. I have patients that have had this disorder on and off for 15 to 18 years. They'll have it in a, in a couple of years, it'll go away, and then they'll have maybe a three or four year uh, 
vacation from it, and then it'll reoccur. I have one woman, she's had it four times. And she's the woman that says, I don't want Diamox. I don't want acetazolamide. No way. But there's not a lot of choices. The other nice thing about Diamox to bring in, we're talking about headaches, is the headache from uh, people that land in Denver or in the skiing resorts, or people that just get a headache from flying in a plane high up, you can prevent with the use of 250 to 500 uh, prophylaxis diamox on a normal patient. Just one pill, 250, 500, before they get on the flight, or when they hit the ground in Denver or in Aspen. So anyway, acetazolamide is number one. All right. Whoops. Okay. You've got to constantly redo optic, the Humphreys visual fields, so you know if what you're doing is helping. And what you're doing is typically you'll start a patient with up to a thousand mill, a thousand one gram of acetazolamide BID. You can go up to two grams BID. Four, four grams, okay? If that doesn't do it, you can add furosemide, 20 milligrams TID. And if that doesn't do it, you can add Topamax, both furos, uh, um, Lasix and Topamax have about a 10 to 20% carbonic anhydrase inhibition ability, like methadone has 10 to 20%. Uh, ability to stop an MDA receptor agonism. So, you can do that. But people have actually done studies to see is there a better drug than acetazolamide? And the answer is no. The one study that looked at acetazolamide compared to Topamax showed that both the Topamax and the acetazolamide, they had 165 patients, both of them did a great job at decreasing the uh, increased intracranial pressure. But what they found was the acetazolamide worked the way I, I told you, just as purely carbonic anhydrase inhibit inhibition, whereas diamo uh, I'm sorry, Topamax worked by decreasing weight. Again, one of the things you have to do when a patient is diagnosed with IIH is tell them, this disease, I'm going to help you every way I can, and what you've got to do is you need to lose 5 to 10% of your body weight. That, in and of itself, will prevent the need for any significant neurosurgical or surgical problems. Okay? Something to think about. So prophylaxis, we talked about. If you have patients with headaches, that's why it gets sent to me, and if they have IIH and they don't have any help from the decreased CSF, then you're dealing with a primary headache disorder, migraine or tension-type headache. And you treat that 
with appropriate medications, depending on if it's uh, more than 15 days a month, less than 15 days a month, is it tension type, is it migraine, what is it? Do you, you can use a migraine drug for prevention. You can even use a triptan. You can use appropriate medications for tension type headache, along with the acetazolamide. These are two entirely different issues, okay? And that, again, is if when you drain the fluid, if the headache goes all away and they have no prior history of headache, it's just from I, uh, the IIH and the acetazolamide will get, help get rid of it. If somebody develops a significant problem with vision, you want to hit them with a big dose of prednisone. I'm talking 60 to 100 milligrams a day for about 10 days. That'll stop a marked inflammatory response. So, topiramate, again, is nice because of the weight loss associated with it. Now, most people, if acetazolamide doesn't work, and in probably 98% of the patients I can get by without any neurosurgical, I've only sent two patients for neurosurgical intervention. Both were men. Okay, both had fulminant uh, IIH. And what happens is the indications for surgery is new and significantly worsening visual fields, okay? Reduction in visual acuity, which is very late stage. Presence of severe visual loss in one or both eyes. And headache unresponsive to medication. And then there's five types of things you can do surgically, all right? Number one, optic nerve fenestration. Anybody hear about that? Anybody know what that is? Okay, we'll show you. A lumboperitoneal shunt, a ventriculoperitoneal shunt, which is much better. Dural venous sinus stenting, which is about 10 years old. Uh, if there is a sinus problem in the brain, what they'll do is they'll go in and they'll put a stent, just like they would in a cardiac artery. And bariatric surgery. So this is a ner optic nerve sheath fenestration. Remember, as I told you, around this, the CSF, around the optic nerve, presses on the optic nerve, the sheath around the nerve. And so what this does is it actually puts a little rectangular hole in that sheath surgically. So that decreases the strangulation, if you will, of the nerve, and it decreases the visual problems because the optic nerve becomes normal as much as it can, as long as you're getting rid of the fluid. CSF diversion procedures, there's the three that I mentioned, lumboperitoneal shunt. The problem with that is within a year, you're going to have to go in typically and redo it. The ventriculoperitoneal is the one you want to do. Yes, you do get problems with that shunt too, but not as frequently. And third is the stent. Okay, but this is most interesting, the outcomes. Okay, this is from a meta-analysis. And the first thing they looked at was optic nerve fenestration in 252 patients. 80% had improved visual defects and resolved. 80%. Whereas if they looked at 31 patients with VP shunts, ventriculoperitoneal shunts, 38.7% had the same improvement. 
If you looked at an LP shunt, lumboperitoneal shunt, in 44 patients, 44.6% of patients got better. And finally, if you implanted a shunt, intracranial venous sinus stent, 47% improvement. So what would you rather do? I'd go with the optic fenestration. Bariatric surgery. Some, as I indicated, some of these young ladies are extremely morbidly obese, and a Roux-en-Y is the procedure that is most likely used. And it'll take one or two months after that to see everything melt away. Okay, their weight goes down, the optic pressure goes down, papodema's gone, visual field is normal. So you can download that slide. That tells you everything in a little management thing that I did. So monitoring. The appearance of papilledema is and can be very deceptive. The swelling, the papilledema, may decrease among patients with long-term papilledema, as I said, and this is progressive optic atrophy. Therefore, it doesn't look like papilledema, but it's a worse situation visually for the patient. That's why you need every two to three months to have a repeat Humphrey's visual field. Again, testing with, you know, optic field with your fingers is really old school. But, you know, some of us will do it on exam if we need to. And all patients with a suspected diagnosis of IIH need to, first thing, if they have one issue, if they have pulsatile tinnitus and they have TVOs, but no seemingly uh, no papilledema, get a Humphrey's visual field. And if it's abnormal, treat them for IIH. And I think that's it. Any questions? Alan. Does a retinal scan help you in any way beyond what you mentioned already? A retinal scan? No. Does not. Yes. So the difference telling us that us looking at this is primary care, but we're not doing it. Oh, thank you, David. Would you start again? So I guess my question is, in patients with headaches who are morbidly obese, should I be sending everybody to the ophthalmologist or to the optometrist to look at it? And then my secondary question is, acetazolamide, if you have a sulfa allergy, what are we maintaining on patients in the long run if they can't take Diamox? If they can't take Diamox, you would use a combination of topiramate and Lasix. That's your only other options. You can use for significant problems steroids. Okay, and to answer your first question, if you can't do a visual field and pick up papilledema, which is what most of the neuro residents I see in the first and second year have problems with, uh, there are tools you can use that actually magnify it. Okay, and that's helpful. Cost I think four or five hundred dollars for this tool, and you want to learn to recognize 
not, you don't have to learn the frisson stuff. You want to recognize when the optic nerve is abnormal. You may not know exactly how or why, but if it looks abnormal to you, send them to neuro-ophthalmology. If you just send everybody that's enlarged, that's obese, and, and has headache to an ophthalmologist, they're not going to see your patients after a while. Okay. Here's a question. Um, okay, I have a patient who was referred over to me from a neurologist on mega doses of opiates. And when I refused to prescribe them for her and send her back, uh, he said that that would be the appropriate treatment to reduce her headaches. Yeah. Is that an appropriate treatment for this kind of condition? Okay. Eight opioid pills, I don't care if it's uh, Vicodin or Percocet or Oxycontin, Eight opioid tablets a month creates analgesic rebound headache. Doesn't matter if they have IIH. That's a separate issue. But it's still a real issue. So you'll have patients with increased severity and increased number of headaches as long as they're taking opioids. And when patients, tell, when patients come in on opioids, I'd call their doctor first and say, you know, there's not much I can do as long as they're taking opioids for their back. I'm not going to stop their opioid. You're giving it to them. But by the same token, I'm telling you, I'm not going to be able to get rid of their headache. Because preventative medication, okay, migraine preventative, in the face, or attention type headache preventative, in the face of opioid-induced analgesic rebound, prevents the opioid-induced analgesic rebound prevents the preventative medication from working. Okay? So they're going to have headache no matter what, as long as they're on the opioid. And if they're on it for a good reason, you can't take them off, and you tell them, I can't do much to help you because of this, and I'm not going to change it unless you want to get rid of the headache and have more pain in your back. Okay, and then I've got to do that with the doctor that's giving them pain meds. Okay, I will not change anybody's opiate without talking first to the doctor that prescribed them. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Did that answer your question? Uh, sort of. Yes. Sort of. <laughs> there you go. Can you repeat your suggested topiramate and furosemide okay. dosing? Furosemide's 20 TID for uh, Topamax. I have gone as high as 200. I've seen some people at 400. The problem that you have to remember is once you get over 150 of topiramate, you're just asking for cognitive deficits to occur. And do you have any suggestions for um, some of those irregular, not tolerated side effects other than decreasing the dosage? That's it. And if you decrease it so that it doesn't, it isn't helpful for the IIH, then what are you doing? Basically, you're not treating them. Okay, and I ask the patient, you don't want to take it, you don't like the side effects, would you like it better if you were blind? Now, if they have an allergic reaction, an anaphylactic reaction, obviously, you can't use the med. But, you know, I don't like the way it feels, and I like my soda. I actually had that discussion. I like my soda. You know, do you want to get better, or do you want to go blind? Uh, excuse me. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, sir. Yeah, I, I have a patient that has have been having these uh, temporal headaches and uh, oh, I had, we sorry. 
and uh, sent him to UCLA, and they saw him for a long time. Then they sent him back, and then they told me to give her Diamox. But she has Bud-Chiari syndrome. Is, would that be an increase, something that would increase the risk for that? Or? No. Arnold Chiari syndrome does not increase the risk for IIH at all. And all too many, Arnold Chiari syndrome is when the um, part of the uh, back of the brain goes down into the foramen magnum. If it goes less than a centimeter, it's Chiari type 1, and there's too many decompressions. This neurosurgical decompression can have significant side effects, so you don't want to do it. And unfortunately, the other folks are lining up, and I thank you for your time. <laughs>